Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Edwin Davis and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Well, you seem remarkably chillaxed, Ed. Well, I'm uh, living that work from home life uh, that everyone is really kind of cottoning on to this week for <laughs> totally not relaxing reasons <laughs> um, uh, yes my uh, my office is closed until april on account of the coronavirus and so i have just been working from home the last couple of days and you and i were just talking offline about how you are the this is the first conversation with a real person i've had in about 24 hours <laughs> because i have been very good and social distancing and all that sort of stuff not having to go into my office or anything like that but yeah it's 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 been a weird couple of days <laughs> for for um i think for everyone in general but certainly uh in in my sphere of everyone just being like well see you at some point <laughs> see you see you at some undetermined time in the future yeah uh, but obviously like you know through things like slack people are keeping in contact you know there's a there's a thread on my work slack which is just everyone sharing pictures of their pets um who are they're all branding their co-workers uh, for their work from home period and I always I think it's just funny because they all just look really annoyed because <laughs> they're all thinking this is my time why are you here but yes I think that gets us into the the news for this week which uh, unsurprisingly is dominated by the coronavirus pandemic which is having even more effects on the world of film and television than previously and just entertainment in general you know this week it was announced that E3 the big um uh, you know, computer gaming expo um, is not going to happen this June, which was kind of expected. And you know, people were thinking in in a situation where you want to avoid cramming together too many people in an enclosed space, something that brings tens of thousands of people to Los Angeles to spend their time waiting in queues and then cramming into a convention center is probably not the right thing. Uh, and then there were a bunch of stories about things like HBO. Uh, halting production on a bunch of their series that broke yesterday they, they're halting production on the new seasons of Barry, The Righteous Gemstones and Succession which were all kind of in various stages of production but they say you know we value the health of our of our cast and crews and we don't want to run the risk of any of them getting sick and becoming vectors for the disease but I think probably you know this is just anecdotal data uh, evidence but the thing that really seemed to cut through the noise for a lot of people that I spoke to after it happened was uh, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson testing positive for coronavirus whilst they were in uh, while they were in Australia because uh, it seemed to, and I think David Sims wrote something along these lines for The Atlantic, it really seemed to bring home the pandemic to people in a way that I think had not necessarily been apparent to everyone previously. It's an incredibly abstract thing because for so many reasons, and I think there is an awful kind of, yeah, I'm going to say it, there's racism, right? There's a sense that mm. when coronavirus first 
appeared in December, um, it was seen as something, you know, over there and like awful for China, but a little bit like SARS as well. Um, and some, it, it stoked up really unhelpful views. Friends of mine uh, live in Shanghai and they were on lockdown for all of February and it felt also quite contained in that respect. I think, yes, there was a sense of like, oh, well, it's not happening to white people. So why are we, you know, which is how the media always covers it, particularly in the UK and the US. It's like, oh, well, you know, but it is an abstract thing without even factoring that level of kind of um, racism into it. But the thing about Tom Hanks in particular, I think it's also the nature of his public persona in that he's kind of everyone's dad. At least I feel this way about him. Um, And to have someone as kind of (laughs) basically kind and nice and positive to, you know, (laughs) I'll tell you how I found out was on Twitter. I was on a course this week, just gone. And um, when I saw on Twitter and Instagram that Tom Hanks had publicly, also publicly disclosed himself, um, that he'd contracted it, this incredibly sweet, generally quite quiet woman (laughs) just shouted, protect him at all costs. (laughs) And... And I think that sums it up, right? It's like, oh God, even if, you know, is is nothing sacred? No, not when it comes <laughs> not when it comes to viruses. It's really not. I hope he and Rita are, are getting well. And my friend Daisy, who's a very funny lady, you should all follow her on Twitter, Daisy Bard. I was very pleased to see her go viral in the old way, <laughs> in the old meaning, <laughs> um, with her nominative determinism joke about Colin and Chet. It's great. Go follow her. Well done, Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, Chet, Chet Hayes's uh, update of it on Twitter was very, it was very reassuring because he wasn't talking in his, the weird patois that he seems to always <laughs> ad- adopt when he's being on camera. <laughs> On that note, did you see um, that wonderful clip? I mean, Meet Joe Black is, <laughs> is quite the watch for so many reasons. Um, but there is a bit where Brad Pitt turns to camera and says, everything's going to be iry. I can't even, I don't even want to, I can't even attempt it, Ed. Um, it's, and it's yeah. not great, but uh, it was retweeted <laughs> with, <laughs> it was quoted with the caption, <laughs> Chet reassuring his dad. <laughs> <laughs> something to that effect so uh, yeah maybe you know coronavirus is showing us that you know we should fuck around and do things like not adopt patois (laughs) or culturally appropriate or you know maybe universal healthcare for all just you know throwing this out there yeah a few a few small suggestions uh, to help us at this difficult time Uh, yeah meet joe black's a weird cultural artifact i like how over the last couple of years, uh, that that sequence of him talking in patois to the you know the, the old Jamaican woman who realizes that he's deaf and he's trying to reassure her has repeatedly kind of done the rounds of people saying, "Why is this allowed? <laughs> Why was this considered good in 1999?" But the other one that's um, oh, there's actually three things from it, three funny things from a joyless three-hour movie that most people went to see just so they could see the Phantom Menace trailer beforehand are him doing the patois 
him getting hit by multiple cars. Oh. <laughs> Which someone made the excellent point of it feels like a I think you should leave sketch. Mm. <laughs> and, and it does. And it, like, yeah, that it was doing the rounds earlier. Like, and, uh, you know, Claire Filani was, was like hot property at the mm. time. It's just. And I, she got such a bad rap, I think, which is a real shame. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, if you're stuck for something to watch and you have to be really stuck, it's three hours long. <laughs> <laughs> and it is full of moments like this. Brad Pitt's hair is not the worst thing about this film, and that is saying something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing, of course, is immediately before he gets hit by a car, he and Claire Fulani just keep <laughs> looking back to each other. <laughs> And the video, if if you watch the clip, it does look like someone has manipulated it and just like repeated the scene several times. It goes on way too long, <laughs> but it is, yeah. It's, there's some incredible choices there by Martin Brest, one of the uh, someone who directed one of the best films ever in Midnight Run and not much else since. <laughs> really, kind of uh, has really kind of uh, cemented his position as a, as a great filmmaker. But yeah. Yeah, people don't watch all of Meet Joe Black unless you like, like Emily said, unless you've really run out of things to do. But certainly watch those clips for three hours worth of time. <laughs> Just on a loop. Restart Vine. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we've got TikTok now. I think TikTok's really gonna, as as the stock market collapses, maybe TikTok is the thing that will uh, outlive us all. Um, there is, there is. I mean, in terms of us streaming even more than ever um as we're gonna have to there's some interesting i found a really interesting article by owen is it gleberman or gleiberman uh, i've always heard gleberman gleberman sorry owen <laughs> thank you for the clarification ed um in variety where he's positing that when we are able to go back into cinemas there's going to be a really good you know people will go back in in force and will appreciate seeing films in cinemas which i think Mm. is a really lovely hopeful thing i'm i'm at peak flumped with everything right now so i don't know how much i can get behind it but i really respect him for putting forward such a coherent argument for something hopeful and that this year you know things are going to shift exponentially and because it's not just like, oh yeah, you know, we can just stream stuff, but that's just the audience and exhibition part. That's nothing. Mm. That's nothing to do with like development, things currently shooting. Um, I think Charlie Brooker about ten years ago in the Guardian. I feel like I misremembered exactly what he said, but I remember him as saying, "Can culture just stop for a year so we can all catch up?" Mm. And I think maybe this is the chance for us to complete Netflix, Ed. And then hopefully we'll really look at um, practices and, and how to protect freelancers because mm. this is this is unprecedented. It's, what, about a century since the last kind of pandemic on this scale? Yeah, since the Spanish flu yeah, after yeah. World War One. yeah. And, you know, a lot of things are due an overhaul, but maybe if it's finally getting to people like Tom Hanks... And into leaders' rooms, something will actually happen. Oh yeah, let's look after the planet as well, maybe. Um, I realise my list of demands is growing ever longer. <laughs> <laughs> and with more emphatic, bold type. But that own uh, 
Owen Gleiberman um, article is really interesting um, and I'm just uh, it would be nice to have some clear fact based <laughs> guidelines as to what to do going forward mm. because yeah certainly certainly for me as, a, as an office temp and uh, <laughs> as an office temp and a comedian I'm going to have to rethink my <laughs> <laughs> um, and on a completely uh, complete tangent, Ed, I'm thinking of finally reading my year of rest and relaxation. Well, it's the right time. <laughs> right? <laughs> everyone's everyone's going to be so relaxed. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've I've been trying to think of like I've got I have a I have a bad habit of like a buying books, which I do eventually get to, but you know it can take a while. Everybody have bad habit of going into secondhand bookshops and just picking up books and thinking, yeah, that sounds good, and then it, you know, them sitting on the shelf for years at a time. But I also, whenever you know, Criterion have their bi-yearly sales where they're like, oh, you know, everything's half off. I'll like buy a bunch of stuff that sounds interesting, and then I'll get it, and it's like, oh, this is a four-hour Chinese movie. Um, when am I going to find the time to watch this? I'm suddenly thinking, well, actually, if I'm working from home and, you know, I can just have things on in the background, not, you know, a bright summer day, which, you know, you probably need to focus on. But certainly, you know, there's a bunch of noirs from the 40s and 50s I could probably put on and kind of, you know, finally knock off of the list. And I might also finally read Dune because that's a book that I've, tried several times and every time I get slightly further in and I get slightly more into it but then for some reason it just kind of falls out of the rotation so like finally read that in time for the film to be delayed alongside everything else that's the other thing that's going to be weird when you know the the pandemic you know crests when we flatten the curve as they say they will have to reschedule like three months worth of movies at the least because at the moment and certainly in the US I think the only wide release movie between now and maybe May is Trolls World Tour and even then who knows if that's going to get pushed back like everything that was meant to come out in April has been pushed back or um, except in the instance of that um, Eric Andre Tiffany Haddish prank movie which weirdly got pushed forward a week but everything else like has been pushed into the the indeterminate future and that's going to be a real crush for people to kind of work schedule us to work out when exactly is the right time to debut the new bond and things like that so yeah it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens when the cinemas are all kind of people are able to go to cinema en masse again suddenly having a glut of stuff maybe that will also drive people to go to the cinema a bit more and you'll kind of see this almost like the baby boom but for uh box office yes well a lot of uh, people might turn up in nine months <laughs> mm. gonna have to book a lot of mother and baby screenings <laughs> in one piece of non-coronavirus related news mm-hmm. daniel radcliffe was on desert island discs in the UK most recently. Um, well, I, I wanted to say today because we're recording on the same day that Desert Island Discs is released in the UK, uh, the mm-hmm. um, iconic BBC Radio 4 series. Um, and he, I think it's quite unfair because um, it, it's being recorded in the press. Of, of course it is. As uh, he says, he, like the headline in The Independent, for example, and I think it's, a really irresponsible headline um, says Daniel Radcliffe has blamed the role of Harry Potter for turning him into an alcoholic. 
Um, and he does not do that at all. Um, uh, his actual quote, um, I think badly at first, if I went out and if I got drunk, I'd suddenly be aware of there being interest in that because it's not just a drunk guy, it's, oh, Harry Potter's getting drunk in the bar. And that people sort of thought it's inherently funny and sort of mocking him. And he said that his way of dealing with it was to just get drink more or get more drunk. So I did a lot of that for a few years. And he says, uh, it was panic, a little bit not knowing what to do next, not being comfortable enough in who I was to remain sober. He's been sober for 10 years. And like the level to be, to be literally the most famous person in the world when you're what, 11? That's, mm. I mean, it's incredible that he is such a sweet person <laughs> that he is. Like, what immense strength. And I think it's just a real shame that there's still so much, um, oh, so much um, a lack of understanding around addiction mm. and, and coping mechanisms and things like that. I'm like, please give the poor guy a break. I also really recommend listening to his WTF he and Mark Marin are clearly just drinking a lot of coffee and probably smoking too much because you can hear them <laughs> light up a couple <laughs> of times. But they just seem too lovely, like people in... And again, like the way that they're talking about recovery. Um, so yeah, I don't think he blamed the role once. I think he is uh, taking responsibility for himself, which is part of what <laughs> recovery is about. So um, fuck the media once more. <laughs> Mm, yeah, I've always had a lot of time for Daniel Radcliffe, despite the number of times that I was called Harry Potter in school. Um, that definitely wasn't his fault. Uh, <laughs> but, um, like, he has always seemed to be a thoroughly decent person. And yeah. I've really, uh, every time I've heard him talk, he's always come across as just, like, an incredibly smart person. And, uh, yeah, I think I will check out. I haven't listened to an episode of WTF in quite a while, but I think I will check that one out because that sounds... Very interesting. I think the last one I listened to was probably the PTA one, because oh, yeah. th that was just, uh, yeah, I like PTA. He's not exactly a hermit or a recluse <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I'm sure if you wander around like Hollywood and Vine, you'll probably see him shooting a home video on any given day. Maybe not now. He's probably he's probably holding up with the 27 kids. <laughs> um, but his he he because he doesn't do commentaries anymore like he has deliberately said he will never do an audio commentary again because he felt that people kind of missed misread a lot of the things he said on like the boogie nights commentary or they would kind of take his gospel or something that he said just trying to fill time <laughs> when he was kind of like in a recording booth it's kind of rare to kind of hear him have like a really long form conversation about his work in the way that you know some filmmakers will sit down and record like a commentary and i remember his conversation with wtf uh, with wtf with mark Marin being like really cool particularly when it got onto the question of like magnolia and him kind of like looking back on his younger self and thinking you know how he was so adamant that nothing could be cut from it and now he like rewatches and says yeah i could have cut 30 fucking minutes from this <laughs> <laughs> which is such a, a lovely thing to hear from someone who's like just being very honest about you know maybe their, their perspective shifting over the course of their life and their career and maybe thinking they were a little bit of a dick early on in their, in their early days, which uh, is also very in keeping with the WTF aesthetic. 
so we will go on to our main topic this week, which is kind of a B-side, the kind of like mirror image, the dark passenger to last week's where we were talking about kind of versatility. We're going to talk a little bit about typecasting, you know, actors, performers who tend to do a lot of a certain kind of role or, you know, kind of get pigeonholed for one reason or another, sometimes somewhat positively, sometimes negatively. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a phrase that I think has become a little bit pejorative now when you say that someone has been typecast when it's perhaps a little more value neutral in that it's literally just kind of like a thing that sometimes happens to actors <laughs> sometimes you fall into a niche and people are like yeah we'll cast you in like a thousand things and, and pay you well for it but yeah so, so that's kind of uh, what we're talking about this week is is uh, typecasting actors who take on kind of similar roles or kind of get put into a a certain they get kind of like pushed into a certain mold one of the things I kind of wanted to start off with was what what do you think is the difference between being typecast and movie stardom? Because I think it's perf- it, it's perfectly possible to say that, like, John Wayne was typecast in Western roles because he played lots of cowboys and he was in lots of Westerns. But you could also say he was, like, one of the biggest movie stars of his age because he played a lot of cowboys in westerns that people liked so like is there is there much of a difference between the two or is like movie stardom in a lot of cases just a different kind of is is it just like a positive typecasting i think it is you know type Mm -hmm. typecasting is pejorative that's like it's it it's within the term itself right um Mm. it's not like reliable or a penchant for or particularly good at you you don't say oh that's great they're typecast and and i think it speaks to like just thinking about the like the actual term itself like it's not a slur um but it's um although although it kind of is it's it's like it's i think it's an incredibly passive aggressive Mm. thing to use and it criticizes a whole bunch of people right It, it criticizes um, the actor, their agent, casting directors, and I think it used to be about oh, we see something that we just expect that's something incredibly predictable. Maybe it takes you out of the film, and that's where that <clears throat> anger comes from. It's like oh, it's that same person again. Um, I yeah. can't, I can't lose myself in this film. So I think there's a little kind of like a sort of reactionary anger to that but now i wonder if it's it can actually be used for a sort of social good in terms of casting and be like well the whole reason and 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 to flip it and to invert it and be like oh it's not the actor's fault what if they're being pigeonholed what if they're not you know not allowed to you know because you you'll go for those roles <laughs> unless you're unless you're a producer or have millions and millions of dollars you don't you don't get to pick your role <laughs> mm. um you will you'll be cast someone will tell you what you can be take note scarlett johansson tree chump but and and i think this is really clear particularly in the 90s and rom-coms like i adore judy greer i think mm. she is a hilarious actor and I haven't really seen her in anything in in, in very few things other than 
the supportive, kind of quirky, but not threateningly so, because you can't have too much personality now, um, mm. sort of best friend in, in rom-coms. Um, yeah. And she'd, but, but even she managed to make like the most expositional stuff like sparkle. Like that's, she she's genuinely remarkable. Um, I also may have just happened to start finally getting around to watching Lady Dynamite series two. And uh, <laughs> she plays, <laughs> she plays a sort of crooked accountant called M. Besler. <laughs> <laughs> Emily Besler <laughs> um, who's been hypnotised and can't remember the, the number seven. Oh god <laughs> I'm adding to my list of demands that Lady Dynamite be uncancelled in her <laughs> third season but you see this happening to women a lot in the, you know, it's wives and girlfriends that's yeah. it and it's only really it's always been an alternative or like bubbling under for for women to actually have agency and their own full mm. roles and and you know and um it'll be interesting to see what opportunities will come for people who are gender fluid like trans mm. i think it's difficult because there's typecast and then there's also tropes and i think they are yeah. two separate things but because back in the day you were known everyone was typecast because you mm. had certain studios that that you you were contracted to you know <laughs> to the hilt to to do how how, how many westerns because that was what you did. Mm. Yeah, and so many Hollywood studios produced so many more movies then than they did now than they do now. So there was definitely that sense of like, oh, Humphrey Bogart finally yeah like Humphrey Bogart early on in his career was cast in kind of a bunch of different roles. It was not like he was playing romantic leads because he always had that kind of like gruffness to him he always had that kind of but he was cast as like villains and as heavies and things like that and then suddenly he was in the Maltese Falcon which was like a huge hit and then suddenly it's like great how many more movies can we put him in where he plays a detective yeah <laughs> or how many more times can we have him play these kind of kind of taciturn guys are on on the edge you know these guys that are kind of at the end of their rope who are just totally cynical but still pursuing justice for some reason and he was always great at those sort of things because he was he was really good at doing that one thing similar to the way that john wayne was very good at playing like that one thing or Cary Grant as we mentioned last week was really good at being the Cary Grant role so there was definitely like this mix of the artistic thing of someone like genuinely being very good at that thing and people thinking okay we need to kind of recreate that but also the commercial side of it which is that if you find that niche for yourself of you know like the example i would think of is if you are someone who is really good at playing like a cop or a lawyer or a doctor then you are set for life on american television like you will play variations on that role forever because there are always going to be those sort of roles and if you kind of are someone that can reliably do that thing then you will just kind of keep circling back to that sort of stuff yeah and you're right as well that i think that is also probably more true for men than women or historically has been the case because there is that sense of like women in hollywood you get like five years in which you're allowed to play the romantic lead or the ingenue or whatever and then immediately you're that you're falling into the Natalie Walker roles to, um, you know, if anyone hasn't seen Natalie Walker's um, great thread of of videos on Twitter where she starts talking, where she starts acting out all of these like really cliched roles, like the supportive wife in the Oscar, uh, the Oscar bait picture and things like that. You know, very quickly 
you will be kind of shoved into those sort of things where you just support the great man and what they're trying to do. Or, you know, then you eventually, maybe if you are still in the industry and haven't kind of been drummed out of it by some horrible thing or other, maybe you get to play grandmothers yeah. when you're four, when you're 40. <laughs> um, like that's there, there it's, it's a horrible thing that basically happens to almost every actress, every promising actress, unless they get to the point of being someone like an Amy Adams who like have kind of a brand to themselves and are able to kind of pick and choose their roles. Um, but even then I feel like weirdly like Amy Adams has kind of gone into this point in her career where she is typecast as the person who is in prestigious movies. Whereas like early on in her career, you know, she kind of jumped around a lot of different genres. Obviously uh, she became known to a lot of people for Junebug, which was like a Sundance indie drama. But then to a lot of like to a mass audience, she became known for being in yeah, Enchanted, which is like wonderful, beautiful, hilarious kind of meta Disney comedy in which she's an absolute ray of sunshine. And it kind of feels like at a certain point, Hollywood was like, no, you kind of play conflicted characters in dark dramas <laughs> like that's the point at which you kind of reach that role which she's good at and you know that's not uh, nothing to to kind of knock her for but that that is a kind of typecasting in and of itself is not just like type of roles but as a sense of like these are the types of movies you make yeah something it has to be something serious it has to be based on a play that no one saw <laughs> um, <laughs> also in kind of like if we're talking about the dark side i guess of of typecasting i think commercially it can be very beneficial to an actor you know like if they find that they are very good at playing villains and then they're just cast as villains for years and years and years in blockbusters then that can be hugely you know financially great you know that will set you up for life but it can be artistically very stymieing the example i had was ben mendelson who i think is a fantastic actor someone who if you look at the work he did kind of pre-Animal Kingdom when he kind of became known to a kind of a broader audience, as someone who has kind of like a very varied role, is always kind of like a crackerjack performer and is just like a real live wire and really fun to watch. As soon as he was cast in Animal Kingdom, which was a movie that got a lot of attention, got an Oscar nomination for Jackie Weaver and really kind of broke him to a lot of people immediately he was like right we're going to cast you as every villain in every kind of mid to high budget uh, blockbuster for that we can find until it gets to the point where even when he was good in all those movies like it got to the point where they were like oh he's playing the sheriff of nottingham in a new robin hood it's like of course he is mm-hmm. like every every person who kind of falls into that bracket of being like the villain will at some point end up being cast as the sheriff of nottingham the other example of course of that being like alan rickman um where even if he's really good in prince of ties there is that sense of like oh he played a villain in die hard that was the first movie he'd ever been in so obviously everyone's going to kind of try and make him a villain in things for as much as possible and even if they're good at it you kind of feel like you know they're probably not being funneled into different more interesting stuff uh, which was why it was really nice when ben mendelson showed up as like you know in in captain marvel they kind of subvert that a little bit where you think he's the villain for it and then it turns out that he's not and he's just you know kind of a more ambiguous character and he's just kind of allowed to be fun and and to kind of have a little fun with the role for sure and i remember him being like really quite funny in killing me softly and Mm. he was in a um oh god uh i think it's about 10 years ago maybe more um a film called beautiful kate where he's Mm. this kind of 
dramatic lead and he's brilliant and yeah it's but you know if he's if he's all right kind of being a baddie in star wars and <laughs> mm. i wonder how wounded he feels by not being able to do you know when 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 them lucasfilm checks come in <laughs> yeah yeah the rogue one residuals are probably pretty nice <laughs> compared to i don't know the place beyond the pines in which he played a character who was just nice (laughs) like that was the thing i remember that's the thing from place beyond the pines that i kind of has lingered with me was he's only in the like i think he's only in the first part of that because the part where he's like ryan gosling's best friend and most of the time it's just them hanging out getting drunk and kind of laughing and that was like really nice because even by then which is only two years after he'd been in animal kingdom i remember feeling like oh it's nice that he's doing this it's nice that he's not just playing psychopaths um but but yeah like like you say like that's the balance isn't it of you maybe are not doing the most interesting work or you're not being given the greatest variety of things to do but you know you're able to buy a house so it probably probably works out i think another example of someone who i feel like i feel like typecasting as as a term like like you know we were saying that it kind of it seems like an anathema to versatility and that's kind of why we're discussing it because like there's this sense of like oh this person only plays these kind of roles but i feel like there is there is a type of typecasting where it allows for a certain degree of versatility like the example i have is gary oldman who in the 90s i think it's fair to say was typecast as like a villain in movies like he was very much a go-to villain for hollywood but not none of those performances were remotely similar to each other they're all like wildly eccentric and weird like you he's the villain in both i mean they're not hollywood movies i guess but you know he's the villain in both leon and the fifth element but you would struggle to kind of draw a point of comparison between the two of those but it really does kind of point to the idea that the act you know if an actor is supported by a director and if they are able to kind of take on somewhat diverse products then you know being typecast isn't like a death knell for you know being a versatile performer yeah also i think that genre i think plays into this a little bit like i was thinking about um mila jovovich in the resident evil movies which i've been watching all of um this was not just coronavirus related this was something i was already doing but (laughs) having a lot of free time means that i was able to push through the truly terrible second movie and watch the other ones which are all pretty fun um but like mila jovovich is a performer who you know she was in she's been in a variety of different kinds of movies over the course of her career you know like um 10 years ago she was in a movie called stone with robert de niro and i think edward norton which was like a prison drama in which she was very good and there was some kind of talk about her getting an oscar nomination from certainly my mum who really liked her in that movie but she is someone who is kind of very much identified now as being someone who is in action movies and sci-fi movies and horror movies and whilst a lot of those movies have not been of the highest quality she is always kind of a very compelling performer and it really kind of suits her as a performer that she has kind of fallen into that genre and i feel like different kind of genres particularly horror and sci-fi can be very rewarding to performers if they're willing to be typecast because there will always be call for someone who is able to kind of like you know kind of 
project a certain degree of authenticity whilst slicing a zombie in half. Mm. Yeah, and I think the thing about Mila Jovovich is she is interesting as her career is, is an interesting case study, I think, because she's also a model. Um, <sighs> and I think there's this weird tipping point where you have to be kind of again like exactly attractive enough mm. <laughs> you can't be and I've been seeing the Helen Mirren um, Parkinson interview doing the rounds again and I think mm. she deals with his like horrific sexism so wonderfully <laughs> um, mm. but that's it it's this idea of like is she just too beautiful to be taken seriously you know she's mm. she's in these fantasy sort of films you know resident evil the fifth element because she looks too perfect like she you know mm. things that are quite like yeah gamey or, or spacey or doing words good can you tell ed um <laughs> <laughs> i feel fine i'm not running a temperature i promise but and yeah you you sort of wonder i think this happens a lot with um women in action films as well I mean, Emily Blunt's career as well, I think, is a really interesting case study, how she started out um, in really like indie fair. My Summer of Love, I will always bang the drum for that film. Mm. I think it's great. And again, I just think, whatever happened to Natalie Press? She was wonderful. I hope she's doing well. Which just showed her like incredible range. And now she is like A-list. Um, and I would argue as well, she, she was able to kind of move into action Mm. and with her like genius comic turn in The Devil Wears Prada yeah but then you know Edge of Tomorrow I think just changed everything <laughs> um, like those push-ups oh <laughs> I mean I mean this in the nicest possible way but like Emily Blunt in The Edge of Tomorrow is like a serious trigger from my body dysmorphia <laughs> um, so I would be watching it I've googled it enough <laughs> anytime soon but that was a moment in her career um but yeah for for Mila Jovovich yeah I mean I wonder and you you also wonder like how much again is behind the scenes of producers being like let's get Mila Jovovich she's so hot right now like mm. and and that idea of temporality like what if your typecast in a certain way because of <laughs> this certain time you know not to sound too too much like Will Ferrell in Anchorman, um, but, but 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 that temporality is is important. Like that's Lorne Michaels in his uh, WTF um, chat. I think WTF a lot at the moment. He says about the quality of having someone as a host on a show because it works for them because they'll probably have something to promote. Um, but that show at that time it would be significantly different. If another time and I know it, I'm mm. not explaining myself very well sorry but it's it's those dimensions right it's um, appreciating the flicker and the maybe quite ephemeral and, and you'll have this with actors as well and because I find typecasting less of a thing now for exactly the reasons you, you sort of outlined earlier Ed but what I do find quite tricky is that sort of ubiquitous feeling mm. you know where you feel like you can't move for certain actors for like yeah a year or two and again no one can help this <laughs> they, they can't it's not their fault that like suddenly everything's press junketing because that's the way that stuff has come out and has been scheduled and i had this with ryan gosling 
And I think it was difficult because yeah. that was exactly, it exactly overlapped. Like he was typecast and he was everywhere to the point where he was mm. self-aware enough to be like, yeah, I'm sick of my own face. I'm going to take a break mm. <laughs> and see, come back and see you guys with the nice guys. And he was very funny and I'd like to see him in more of that because, and I think one of my favorite sketches ever is uh, Ryan Gosling's acting range, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, a, a funny or die classic. And I think it manages to poke fun at, but in a way that I think he'd even appreciate and be like, yeah, no, fair point. How typecast he got. But that was what, uh, sort of in the run up to that, that was what people thought. And by people, sorry, I mean more like, you know, producers and people being like, oh, give give the audiences what they want. Exactly the same. <laughs> mm. But I think we're a much more, we're a much fussier bunch now, aren't we? Mm. I think, yeah, there is definitely uh, the problem of ubiquity. I feel like some actors can more or less avoid it by uh, you know at the very least being in movies that maybe not that many people see for example i was just thinking about lucas hedges who is generally great in most things he does but there was like a year or so where it seemed like he was in every movie (laughs) like every like talked about indie movie that was coming out had him in some kind of like supporting role and like I think I think it helped that he was in movies that were on a much smaller scale so that people except for you know people who are watching a lot of you know watching all of the Oscar movies to stay in part, as part of the conversation and just being like fucking Lucas Hedges is in this again what is happening you know like people having uh, uh, someone being in like a lot of like big movies I think can really contribute to that sense that you know you go from the audience being like oh i like this person i would like to see them do this thing they do more often to you know borderline contempt which i think you see in like the actually you see it twice but with um matthew mcconaughey where there's that you know he's once he became the guy who leans on posters um, in all these rom-coms in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Like, he was on a, a string of really successful movies and then just suddenly it was like, Ghost of Girlfriends passed? Nope, we're good, even though that's one of the better ones. But, like, there was just a point in which everyone seemingly decided we have seen enough of, of Matthew McConaughey being in these kind of movies and then he had to take, you know, a, he kind of, like, reassessed and was in a bunch of more interesting, more critically acclaimed movies, and then then it hit, like, gold in the Free State of Jones, <laughs> and then it was just like, no, we're good now. We're good seeing you in these kind of, like, wanting to win an Oscar even though you already have won roles. Yeah. Um, there, there is a case of him kind of being a victim, like you say, kind of being a victim of his own success because he was in all those rom-coms because he was in a couple that were big hits, and they said, oh, this is what people want. Let's cast him in more, until the point where you know, audience taste changed and people were just like, yeah, we, we're just not, we just don't want more of you right now. We would like something else. And then he switches up and does an entirely different thing, enjoys a somewhat smaller window of being beloved for all of these like great critical turns that he does. And then, you know, has now settled into this weird position where he's in, he doesn't necessarily seem to have much of an identity as an actor, which he certainly has a persona which everyone can imitate and kind of instantly sum up but like it doesn't feel like as a movie star there's much of a place for him at this point which is a shame because i still think he is capable of really good stuff i really loved him in the beach film last year but that there is definitely that sense of like 
he went through like two very noticeable peaks in his career where he was pretty much everywhere and then just kind of like burnt out really quickly do you think there's maybe a resistance to because that's a path that was beaten by brad pitt and george clooney Mm. and i think a lot of that is to do with if you've got the producing power Mm. you kind of you shift up and take take the take the power into your own hands a little bit absolutely you can you can call the shots if uh, you're bankrolling things mm. i think um ben affleck also falls into that category in the sense that like after he and matt damon won their oscars he they, they kind of took divergent paths in a certain respect in that uh, matt damon went and said okay well i'm going to be the lead in uh, the talented Mr. Ripley, or you know, I'm going to try and make these movies with respected directors. And Ben Affleck went and took the paycheck, literally in the John Woo movie paycheck, of basically saying, "Okay, I'm going to be the action guy now. Yeah, I'm going to be in. I'm going to be in Armageddon. I'm going to be in The Sum of All Fears, playing uh, Jack Ryan, the, the the one guy that no one remembers playing Jack Ryan. Actually, no, people don't remember Chris Pine either. But you know, like." He, he he daredevil you know like he decided he was going to be all in on like the action movie guy and very very quickly people became sick of him yeah <laughs> people like he was in a handful of movies that did well but like there was and then part of this is also tied into him becoming a tabloid thing with jennifer jennifer lopez and Lee and all of that stuff all kind of like compounding to the point where he like like people became sick of just hearing about him all the time regardless of the movies he was in and then you know he kind of stepped away he directed gone baby gone which got a lot of great reviews he directed the town which was a big hit and was kind of a good vehicle for him argo obviously won best picture and there was kind of like a period where he did really seem to have like like clooney or brad pitt of deciding okay i'm going to be the guy that makes projects for myself that suit my sensibilities and i'm going to avoid just kind of being shoved down one particular lane by hollywood and then he threw it away almost immediately by becoming batman and that not really working out but but that is kind of like an example where you're right at a certain point for actors if they want to do interesting work they have to take the reins and hope that it works like if you're George Clooney and you make Good Night and Good Luck and it just completely flops, like it gets absolutely savaged in the press, doesn't get a ton of Oscar nominations as that one does, then then that's it. Then you have no career. Mm. Uh, you know, it took a few. It took a few. It took a few movies for him to reach that point. Um, considering that now he like what was the last movie he did? Did he do something after Leatherheads? I don't think he did. I don't think he... No, no. Because he did... He directed Catch-22 for Hulu, but... Oh, wait, did he direct Suburbicon? Did he? Let me just double-check it. I get the feeling he did after, like, that being a Coen's project for years, and eventually he was just like, no, I'll do it. Correct! Yeah, he had power for a bit. And <laughs> maybe he <laughs> didn't make... Maybe he didn't make the best choices with it, but certainly... That uh, that you know, with Good Night and Good Luck, and like his big his big two thousand and five, where he was nominated for a ton of Oscars for that. He won one for Best Supporting Actor in Syriana, and then he like produced a bunch of stuff. That was that seemed like a very fruitful direction for him to kind of assert control over the narrative of his career, rather than just following the path of like being like after the Perfect Storm. Like he could have been a leading man in big budget action movies f- for the rest of his career if he wanted to, but. 
he clearly didn't want to do that. He wanted to do other things, um, which is commendable, but is is uh, is a big risk. <laughs> Not a lot of actors are necessarily capable of taking. No, that's true. One of the I think one of the undervalued elements of typecasting I think is its subversive qualities in the sense that if you have an actor who is so identified with a certain role or a certain type of role um, casting them against type can be I think hugely powerful and hugely effective the one that I think about most often is uh, William Russ who was the sitcom dad in Boy Meets World like the most supportive uh, you know like a dad who was just there for for his kids all the time just really nice really the embodiment of kind of um i was gonna say midwestern but it takes place in the philadelphia suburbs it's not technically midwestern but you know this kind of like real kind of like middle class nice 90s dad and he was cast as the father of Edward Norton and Edward Furlong's character in American History X. I think he yeah. only appears in flashbacks. But he still has that demeanour where you, like, you see him, you think, oh, the dad from Boy Meets World. And he's like calling his kids down for dinner or whatever. There is still that sense of like, oh, he's like the dad. He's the nice guy. But he is <laughs> the most vile, racist, right, white supremacist stuff. Like it is illustrating how this, where this hatred comes from for his two sons and why how it's instilled in them. And it's a really effective choice because, you know, um, the, the filmmakers know that the audience are you know most people will know this guy as being the lead on this long-running sitcom so casting him as a out and out horrible racist uh, but still having that friendly demeanor really brings home how common this kind of hate is like it's not he's if they'd cast someone in there who was like you know a famously awful looking character actor someone who was like just kind just looked villainous then it would be less effective than saying hey here's this guy that you're comfortable with oh by the way he's horrible and a racist it really does kind of it really does um bring that point home in a way that i've I've always found um really effective even if i'm not i'm not totally sold on that movie as a whole but i I always found that like that choice as someone who watched every episode of boy meets world growing up really really effective yes that's a really good point and i think we'll see more of that going ahead and it's funny because I th- being typecast you know is there's also like what else are you like known for mm. there's kind of that oscillation isn't there because some people's kind of online personas as that becomes more and more and possibly even more <laughs> shared and people are aware then the kind of you can play with that difference and distance between those two like mm. someone who's known online for being like incredibly funny who then turns up in a serious drama again it's just that yeah. kind of how can you keep people guessing how can you delight and surprise your audience yeah i think someone like albert brooks in drive i kind of is an interesting example oh, of that. he's so good in that yeah where he is someone who everyone knows for being this kind of like gruff funny neurotic kind of character in the movies he directs or you know like the voice he does in the simpsons you know he's like this comedy comedy genius just showing up as someone who still has that kind of 
comedy to him because like it's it's kind of impossible for him not to exhibit a certain degree of comedy but being this real force of menace in the movie is like really effective because people are bringing something of uh something of themselves of of their you know kind of relationship with his works to watching him and like it's it's really effective in that movie something that you just mentioned there also I think one of the things that's interesting in like the different kind of personas that people have is I think if if someone's career goes on long enough you can get an interesting thing where they are typecast in the minds of different generations as different things yes yeah like I I always think that it's really funny that like Martin Sheen's career is like if you look at his early roles it's you know two of his most notable uh, uh, notable early roles are Badlands and Apocalypse Now and like they're all his roles of that era are kind of a similar thing they're very intense they're often very troubled you know he played villains in roles particularly if you look at something like The Dead Zone the um, David Cronenberg movie where he plays like a uh, insane presidential candidate a um, yeah <laughs> a movie that's harder harder to watch now for, for various reasons but um like he was not someone who you associated with kind of like cuddliness he, no. wasn't someone who, he was someone who had this like very successful career as like someone who could bring a certain darkness to it like he you only really saw him exhibit that kind of paternal um friendliness you know when he's cast as like Charlie Sheen's dad in Wall Street, where he's meant to represent the kind of the the the, the good angel on his shoulder, essentially, saying, "Hey, maybe this, maybe this Gordon Gecko guy is not so good. Maybe he has an incredibly evil-sounding name." Um, <laughs> and but for the most part, that like that's not really part of his persona. But then in the 90s he's cast in the west wing and suddenly he becomes this even though the character of jed bartlett has all of these different things going on where he is kind of you know he is someone who has been lying to the entire country about this disease that he has and he is this figure who is kind of you know he has a kind of very difficult relationships with the people around him so there is a spikiness to him where you see a lot of that old martin sheen kind of spikiness come through he is still you know he is still the guy who gives the noble speeches he is still the guy who kind of gives you a warm feeling as he's talking and then after that you know he's cast as like the cuddly police chief in the departed he's cast as uncle ben in in like the first amazing spider-man movie like it's very interesting to think that for people of two different generations like there are very different martin sheens out there yes uh, and then he has this other term and this was kind of one of the things that um, I was watching this week <laughs> so working from home I was watching a playthrough of the Mass Effect games on uh, Giant Bomb and Martin Sheen has a role in that as a character called the Elusive Man who is kind of the sort of antagonist of the series he's certainly kind of very menacing and ambiguous and I was just really struck by how much Martin Sheen is playing against type in that based on his current persona. But when I was watching it, thinking, actually, it's kind of just reverting back to what his whole career was up until a certain point where he's playing someone who is kind of intense and unsettling. So we end this episode as we end all our episodes with Shot Reverse, Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? It's an article in Pitchfork, mm-hmm. which is about a talkie monster um, who is an incredible um, producer. And it's a really... It's a, it's quite the read. She had a very rare... Um, life-threatening condition she needed brain surgery for 
um, and she couldn't after after as part of her recovery after um, operation and treatment, um, she couldn't hear music and she couldn't speak, um, and she's thankfully made a full recovery. But it's a really interesting article um, and the first person perspective of like what if the one thing that you do and that you love. Uh, is taken away from you and that's not relevant to any of us <laughs> at this time <laughs> no um bodies are fragile i love you all <laughs> cool i am going to recommend a podcast that i've only just started listening to despite it featuring three people that i love dearly which is freedom t-h-r-e-e-d-o-m from Earwolf, it is a podcast featuring scott ackerman paul f Tompkins, and lauren lapkus in which they just talk to each other not doing characters as uh, they often interact with each other on comedy bang bang and there are other shows that they've contributed on and it is just a hugely enjoyable uh, show the second season of it has just dropped on you know itunes and stitcher and all the usual places previously it was only available on stitcher premium the um paid for app that that earwolf use but now it's available to all and it's just it's really interesting because on the one hand it is them kind of like doing bits and making each other laugh and having these kind of like you know kind of t- turning sentences into songs and then just kind of like singing for no reason but also because they are talking about their lives and telling each other stories about things they've done and people that they've known you do get to these moments where they are having like genuine conversations about their process what they want out of their careers or talking about fairly serious things and i find those kind of conversations from people who are usually you know having conversations that are totally through the layer of irony of them playing these characters uh really really interesting so that is that is freedom on whatever podcast app you use if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm Spotify, all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye.